0: As soon as I say spiritual gifts, some part of the room is saying yes, and the other part of the room is saying, "Oh, I hope he doesn't say something really weird." Um, it, it's, it is one of those categories that that has a lot of uh, value, but also a lot of confusion, a lot of disparity in various churches, and that's part of the reason for the class that we want to create. Um, as much as we can, a, a biblical unity on this thinking so that we can have a biblical practice in our experience. That's one of our, our goals. And our hope is that we would have a biblical practice. Um, you don't teach the Bible, and this is true of any topic of Scripture, only to, to learn truth. You, you teach the Bible, and you read the Bible, and you hear the Bible to apply that truth. We want to be in this category just like any other uh, responding to what James says, that we not be like those who go to the mirror, look at the damage, and do nothing. We want to be those who look at the mirror of God's Word and respond, take action in keeping with God's Word. And I know that when it comes to spiritual gifts, uh, that can seem like a, a concerning or a frightening or a worrisome thing because there are people who we can point out and say, that, that, that clearly is not a right use of this teaching. And and that's true. And yet, the right response to that is not to ignore it entirely, but to press into what the Bible actually says and to actively seek what the Bible calls us to seek when it comes to spiritual gifts. All right, so let me me just take a minute to pray, and then I want to jump into this. Lord, I pray this morning that you would move on these people that have gathered to hear your word, to study your truth. And Holy Spirit, we pray you would move among us that we would love you with all of our heart, that we would serve your people, that you would empower us to serve in profound ways. And I pray even this morning that you would be empowering and envisioning the service of your kingdom and your people, that we would genuinely long to serve you according to your strength and your power and not based only on our own natural abilities. I pray, Lord, that that would be the desire of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, One other note, I just want to prepare you for this. As we go through this, um, what I'm hoping is that at the end of this time this morning, we will take a time of prayer, and the prayer that we're going to be asking is that the Lord would empower the people that are here to serve him, to serve him with spiritual gifts, whatever those spiritual gifts are that he would want to grant or empower that that he would do that. And there might be a particular spiritual gift that you would pray. I would love to serve the church in that way or see God use me in that way. Um, We want to pray to that end. So the goal here, again, is not just information, but application. And so that's where we're kind of heading at the end of our time this morning. All right, rather than kind of slow walk uh, into this teaching, I thought I would introduce this with four foundational statements uh, because this is a topic people might be coming from all kinds of different backgrounds, from suspicion to enthusiasm. And so I thought it'd be helpful to kind of just write up front, what are our foundational convictions? And then we'll walk into why we think that uh, as we go through it. So these here's the foundational statements. Let me read these. The Bible alone is our final and sufficient authority and the inerrant communication of God's perfect will for our faith and practice. Now, these are foundational statements because if you get these wrong, you're going to be building a very different kind of house, right? These have to be things that are agreed upon, uh, without which we really can't come to an agreement on anything else. All right, secondly, all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit referenced in the New Testament continue to be provided to the church today at the sovereign discretion of the Holy Spirit and to be exercised in submission to biblical authority, That's a conviction that we would have. We'll walk through why we have that, but that's a conviction we would have. Third, in the Bible, God directly commands the church to eagerly desire all spiritual gifts. He expressly forbids the de facto rejection of certain spoken gifts. He declares that every Christian will not experience every gift, and he does not make spiritual gifts the center of our spirituality or church life. Now, now that paragraph contains a lot in there. But you can see why each of those sentences makes a point. It basically is declaring, here's where we are, and we're not over there. Here's where we are, and we need to be here. We can't just be somewhere else or not anywhere. Here's where we are, and and we think this is the right way to think about these things. Finally, in obedience to God, we must delight in the gifts of the Spirit. Celebrated in their biblical pattern and proportion as part of the broad work of the spirit given in the new covenant for the good of the church and the glory of God's generosity until the final consummation. So, again, rather than kind of slow walk into these conclusions, I thought I'd just state them up front so you know where we're coming from, where we're going. That might be where you are. It might not be where you are. It might not be where you've been. You might be curious but uncertain. But that's where we are. That's that's the kind of foundational pillars of the teaching we're going to be presenting this morning. Now, here's how this is going to work. There's only one outline this morning, but it's a long one. So I'm going to basically go through the first point in this outline and then break briefly for questions. And then go through the second point in this outline and then take a longer break. And then f- finish our time with the, the third point in the outline. So unless you think, based on the pace, we're going to be here till dinner. Uh, we won't be. Uh, there's just one outline. Uh, we'll walk through it in that way. Alright, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, this is not the only place in Scripture where spiritual gifts are referenced. Many other places where they're referenced. But it has pride of place because of the length of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 12. And so this is a, a natural place to go to sort of understand what, what is it that uh, the Bible teaches about these gifts. And, and one of the things we, we want to remember when we come to 1 Corinthians 12 is that it is God's word. It has authority. It is meant to inspire and transform us. It comes to us as God's own speaking. So let me read just the first section here, verses 1 through 11. But the teaching on gifts and service of the church really continues through chapter 14. Let's just start with chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. All right, number of things we want to note from that paragraph, just at least in overview. First of all, we want to notice what Paul, what Paul describes as the most foundational, or as I put here in your outline, the greatest gift. He doesn't want them to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. And it seems based on the rest of the teaching that some Corinthians were wanting to elevate the importance of some spiritual gifts, probably speaking in tongues, uh, probably for the purpose of self-promotion. So, so largely Paul is coming to a church that has disordered the importance of gifts and he's wanting to adjust them. And the first thing he wants to make very clear is that the most foundational, or we could put it this way, the greatest gift is the ability in faith to call Christ Lord. And anyone who does not call Christ Lord, or even would go so far as to curse Christ, is not operating in the Holy Spirit. So he, he wants to tether them to this Christocentric priority of the Spirit. He's saying, look, th- this is the greatest gift. But you, you guys want to elevate different gifts. You're competing against one another. This one says, I'm more spiritual than you because I can do this and you can't. But he's saying, look, th- there's one foundational greatest gift of the Holy Spirit, and that is the ability to take a person who once hated Jesus and instead to call him Lord. He's obviously not talking about just the, the forming of those syllables. He's talking about the ability to claim in faith Christ as Lord. He's saying that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not erratic. He's committed to that such that you could know for sure whatever other spiritual activity might be happening in a person's life, if they're cursing Jesus, that activity is not the Holy Spirit. So so don't be led astray the way you used to be by so-called spiritual influences or spirituality per se, Because remember, when you were pagans, you were led astray to worship idols. So spirituality is not all the Holy Spirit. There are other forms of spiritual influence, demonic forms and so forth. How do you know the spirit that is the, the spirit of God? Well, you know most foundationally because of this greatest gift, the ability to call Christ Lord. I like what Gordon Fee says. He says, the presence of the spirit in power and gifts... Makes it easy for God's people to think of the power and gifts as the real evidence of the Spirit's presence. Not so for Paul. The ultimate criterion of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. Whatever takes away from that, even if they be legitimate expressions of the Spirit, begins to move away from Christ to a more, listen to this, pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an end. In itself. So the ability to call Jesus Lord is the greatest gift of the Christian and the ultimate identifying mark of spirituality. Carson says it this way, both to those who want to exalt spiritual manifestations as the infallible criterion of the Holy Spirit's powerful presence, and to those who want to question the genuineness of the spirituality attended by such manifestations, Paul provides a profoundly Christological focus. What this opening paragraph, among many other sections of Scripture we could point to, does for us is it reminds us as a church that we must be gospel-centered, not gift-centered. So that's a very foundational point. We believe in spiritual gifts as a church at Redemption Hill. That is one of our church convictions. But we believe it in right proportion. We do not believe that spiritual gifts should be the functional center of our church. So you're not going to hear me say things like on Sunday, what we are all about at Redemption Hill is experiencing the power of the Spirit. You're not going to hear me say things like that, because what we are all about at Redemption Hill, what we are most about at Redemption Hill, is Christ and Him crucified. Because we think that's what the Holy Spirit is all about, and mostly about So there is a place in applying scriptures to make sure that we are honoring the proportion of Scripture. Christ and Him crucified has pride of place as the center of who we are as a church. But it doesn't have exclusive place as if that's the only thing we're going to talk about because Christ Himself poured out the Spirit and that Spirit empowers other gifts as well. So let's get to the second point here, the giver of the gifts. The giver of the gifts. Notice from verse 4 and following, Paul wants to emphasize that God himself is the source of the various gifts of the Spirit. You can see why he's doing this. If the Corinthians are saying, well, I have this greater gift of tongues. Well, I have this greater gift of prophecy. Well, I can work miracles. He's saying, look, you're arguing over something that the same God has given to all of you. Why are you boasting when the same God who gave you that gift is the one who gave them their gift? The point of all this should be the generosity of God, not you boasting in your gift. Uh, The best example I've ever thought for this passage actually is my own grandparents. So my grandparents were not fabulously wealthy, but they were enormously generous. And when I was growing up, one of the things they would do is we would all gather together, our extended family... And they would have sent money to every family member to buy a present for another family member. So everybody came with a gift for someone else to give them. But when we were giving the gifts, and of course, oh, thank you and thank you. But we all knew (laughs) they're the ones that gave it all. They're the ones that gave it all. So obviously you were aware ultimately this is all just a display of their generosity. But they wanted us to be the ones that would give the gifts. So you would give a gift to this cousin or that aunt or that uncle, but you weren't really giving it. You were just passing on what you had been given. Well, that's exactly what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, this all came from God. How ridiculous to say, check out my gift. How great is this? i got a better gift than you, right? Or I'm giving a better gift than you. You see the gift I'm giving to the church? It's more impressive than the gift you gave. Because Paul's saying... The, He gave it all. You didn't give anything on your own. All that you have, you've received. And God, the Trinitarian God, notice how he he works that in here. There's varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Yes, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, but it's for the common good. And then he begins listing out the diversity of gifts that are given. Many diverse gifts are given, but they're all empowered, in verse 11, by the same Spirit, who importions to each one individually as He wills. So spiritual gifts, we could say, come from the triune God. Gifts point us to the generosity of our God. And the distribution of, is at the discretion of the Holy Spirit. So there's no cause for boasting or self-exaltation or pitting one spiritual gift against another because it's all... How grievous would it have been for my grandparents to see people running around boasting about their present on Christmas? Uh, look, look at this amazing... Present. No, no we're, we're all supposed to go to them and say, thank you for letting me take what is yours and use it to serve your people. There should be a humble boldness that ultimately reflects the generosity of God. Now, one note here, we do not believe, based on this passage and others, that any one gift is universally given to all Christians or is a necessary evidence of being indwelt by the Spirit of God. That that does distinguish us, if you've ever studied or know anything about historic Pentecostalism, where they would say that the giving of of the gift of tongues is a, a necessary um, evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We, we would say, no, I, I, I respectfully disagree. I don't think you've read through this passage because Paul says, and even when you look down at verse 29 and 30, he's, he's making the point quite the opposite. Are all apostles? The rhetorical answer is no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? Clear answer is no. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. We, we would look at that and say it would seem based on the, chapter 12 that we're not to expect one gift to be true of all Christians. And we're certainly not to pit gifts against each other. They're meant to reflect the generosity and sovereign discretion of the Lord. All right, let's keep going. What, what is the purpose of the gifts? What is the purpose of... The gifts. For this, I, w- I want to broaden our, our biblical focus a bit because Paul, in 1 Corinthians, his emphasis on the purpose of the gifts is on the serving of the church because he's trying to counteract their self-centeredness. The serving of the church, the magnification, mag- magnification of the generosity of God. But we could broaden that when we look at some of the other passages that talk about the gift of the Spirit. Based on what all of the gof- Gospels and Acts reference, I think the first and foundational reason for any spiritual empowerment is to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ and the blessing of the new covenant. It, it reveals that Christ is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king and that his victory is greater and higher than any previous anointed of the Lord, because he's able to distribute. That's exactly what the logic that John the Baptist uses. How how do we know the greatness of Christ? Well, because he baptizes in the Spirit. And all that the Spirit does reveals him as the giver of a greater outpouring of the Spirit than Moses or David or Jeremiah could ever provide. So the first thing I think is that it glorifies Jesus Christ. But the second thing it does is that it creates a diverse unity of humble interdependence in the church body. This is Paul's point as he keeps going in chapter 12. If the whole body were an eye, he says, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. So it was God's purpose to create a a He uses the body as a metaphor, a Christian church where each member has something to contribute and to receive. And he explicitly denounces a member saying, I have nothing to give, or a member saying, I don't need what you give. He's saying you're not allowed to say either of those things. You're not allowed to minimize your contribution. That's self-pity. Or reverse pride, we put it that way. I, I have nothing to give. No, no, you do. You're, you're denigrating the spirit of God if you say that. You do have something to give. Or you're not allowed to say, I, I don't need what that person has. No, no, no. You're not allowed to say that either. Because their gift may be very different than yours, but you need what they can contribute to the body. Like a body, all parts benefit and receive from other parts. That's how God intended the church to be. Or as Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's, love that phrase, varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and glory and dominion forever and ever. And then finally, what's the use of the gifts? To build up the church in the faith until the Lord returns. That's what Paul's trying to get across to the Corinthians. Look, the goal, the goal is to build up the church. He uses the word edify. To edify, to build up, to construct. You're you're taking your gifts like bricks in a brickyard and throwing them at each other in pride. That's not what they're for. They're for building this church up. Don't be whacking each other with your two by four. Use it to build the wall of the church to serve others. That is the purpose of the gifts. They're not not to exalt exalt yourself or to harm others. They're to promote the well-being of God's people to glorify Him and to reveal that He is the risen Lord who is able to empower His church. That's the purpose of the gifts. Now this then means, if we go to the D section there, that we have to be very clear on the misuse of the gifts and how wrong and dangerous they are. It is a misuse of the gifts to exalt a Christian. It is a misuse of the gift. The whole point Paul is making is this is for the good of the church. It's for the glory of Christ. It's for the revelation of God's exaltation. That's why there are these gifts. So to use them to exalt yourself, either in your heart or explicitly on some stage somewhere, is to, is to do the opposite of what they are given to do. A Christian may not use a gift to promote themselves, to boast in themselves. They also may not use a gift to demote scripture. You can't can't use a gift given by God to undermine God's authority. Because they're given by God. Unless you don't believe the Bible is God's authority, which you don't believe that, then there's no point in having a conversation about gifts anyway. But if you believe God's Bible is his authority and is his statement of infallible truth, you can never use a gift to contradict the authority of God. That's pitting God against God. Then you got serious Trinitarian theology problems. The Holy Spirit submits to the will of the Father and the Son, voluntarily, being fully God. He does what the Father and the Son have sent Him to do. So, so the idea that the Holy Spirit told me to do something that is disobedience to Scripture or that he's led me in a way that contradicts what the scripture says, or he's called me to use a gift in a way that is different than the way it's used in scripture, is inaccurate. It's wrong. Worse than that, it's defying God. It's claiming that God has led me to defy God. It's instituting, if we put it this way, an imaginary Trinitarian civil war. There is no such thing. They're in agreement. Anybody who does that is in a disagreement with them. So those are the misuse of the gift. Something something we have to be soberly aware of and to reject. It cannot be used to exalt ourselves or to demote Scripture. That's to pit God against God, right? Those are the misuse of the gifts. That means then that the only validation for any claim of a spiritual gift is in its conformity to biblical patterns, submitted to biblical truth for the purpose of biblical goals. It's conformity to biblical patterns submitted to biblical truth for the purpose of biblical goals. Now, this is true in all kinds of ways in our culture. I I just want to to emphasize this idea that gifts trump exegesis is very prevalent and dangerous today. Please, please. Be wary of it. It happens in the most unexpected places. I have a gift, and that gift trumps your verse that says I shouldn't use the gift that way. I have a sense that God has called me to do this thing, to speak in this way, to serve in this way. And I can say, yes, but according to the scriptures, you're not supposed to serve in that way based on this reason or that reason. Because of what it says, or the way you're using it is not the way the Scripture describes it. Yes, but, but God wouldn't have given me this gift if He didn't want me to use it this way. Well, unfortunately, we have one infallible record of what God wants, and our subjective sense of what God wants is always to be submitted to that infallible record of what God wants. Now, I believe God empowers people to do powerful things, but He never empowers them to disobey Him. Yeah. So we have to be sensitive to this thinking. If you go online, and I I would recommend you don't, but if you do go online (laughs) and you look at social media, you want to pick up and notice this very subtle line. It comes out in all, I guarantee, if you go to some popular evangelical blog and you read the comments, which I really recommend you don't, but if you read the comments, you're going to hear this thinking. Gift trumps exegesis. Gift means God has told me what he wants, and that is how I'm going to then read my Bible. We might even begin to hear, gift shapes exegesis, it shapes into, since God has laid this on my heart, therefore that's how I'm going to read the Bible, not the actual vocabulary, grammar, and the original intention of the audience. Classic, historic pillars of how you interpret the scripture. It's not based on my lens of how I feel God is at work in my soul, how God has moved in me, and that's how I read this passage. No, 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 what does the passage say? And we shape our subjective senses underneath that impression. This is true of gifts, it's true of leadings, it's true of a sense of what I'm called to do with my life. It's called this this whole idea, well, God would want me to be happy God wouldn't want me to be sad. I feel gifted to serve in this way. Surely, this God, God wouldn't give me this gift if I shouldn't express it in this way. No, no. no We've got to go back to God's word because what God is actually empowering is obedience to his word. Now, once we have that clear, the lane is wide open. So let me speak to a, a different danger. One danger is that you misuse the gifts in that way. Another danger is that you demote the scripture about the gifts themselves. That's another way of demoting the scripture. One way of demoting the scripture is saying, well, I I don't think God would want me to do what the scripture says about the gifts of the spirit. I feel very uncomfortable with that. That's demoting the scripture as well. That's just another way of saying my subjective sense is more authoritative than God's word. My subjective sense of safety, my subjective concerns, my subjective worries, it's more important than God's word. No, no, that's exalting yourself and your subjective sense over Scripture as well. I I am made charismatic because of what the Bible says. Not first and foremost because of how I grew up and experiences I had, but because of what the Bible says and in the way that the Bible says it. So this addresses both of these concerns. And here's, here's the delightful thing we can do. Let me use an illustration that we'll use maybe the rest of the morning. I, I, I am not a very good bowler, but I've gone bowling with my kids on occasion with young people. And they have those wonderful bumper things you can put in there. And now they, they have them mechanized even. They used to just have these big tube things. Now they have like, they just pop them out. Apparently there's a lot more people like me. They, they <laughs> pop them out. And it's great because when those are, you can roll that thing for all your work and it's going to hit something. <laughs> it's going to hit something, man. It goes bouncing down there. Let, let, me, let me say what I think ought to be the two bumpers for our experience of, of, of biblical gifts. First of all, God's word has authority. Yes. That, that's the most important one. But the other one is just another way of saying that same thing, and that's this. My subjective sense does not. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, it's, it's saying the same thing, but it's just, it's, it's helpful to say the negative side too because we forget about, oh, God's word absolutely has authority. I just really feel like God wants me to do this. <laughs> so we say both to help us to wedge us God's word has authority. My subjective sense does not. It does not have authority. It doesn't mean God isn't in what I'm feeling. He may absolutely be in it, but it doesn't have authority. So to use an example, let's say that I I come to church one Sunday and I I feel like God God has put this phrase, it's been on my mind, and and, and here I see this brother, I think maybe I'm supposed to share that phrase of encouragement with them. And and, and I go up to them and I say, thus saith the Lord, you shall move to Montana and leave your family and start an oil business. (laughs) What is that brother supposed to do with that word? What's he supposed to say? God's word has authority. Subjective senses do not. Yes. It's not that God couldn't use a brother to encourage a brother. God could do that. God could encourage a brother. I think that person would be wiser and if he presented that more the way I would recommend it, he would say, look, I could be wrong. Order number one. Yes. My subjective Sense does not have authority. I'm not claiming that this is God's word. Because I don't have authority. God's word has authority. So, no, it's impossible that you should leave your family. But I had an impression that, that maybe God was putting a move on your heart and, and I, I wanted to pray for you that God would lead you and guide you. Is, is that happening right now? And then the brother says, man, you have no idea. I, I've been praying about joining a church plant in Montana. And I don't know how you would know that, but I've been praying for months. I think maybe God's calling me to do that. It's a scary thing. I don't know if I want to do that. Montana, it's freezing up there. I don't know. What do I do? What do, I do? And I'm like, but I, I feel called. I mean, as you know, it's just come up. And I'm like, well, wow, how did you know that? I, mean, I don't know, brother. And I could be wrong. I'm not saying I'm right. But can I pray for you, God, and give you clarity? Could God do that? Absolutely. I absolutely believe. He could do that. He could encourage a Christian in that way. And actually, frankly, all Christians, charismatic and not, do stuff like that. They just use different language. You know, a good Baptist says, "I had a leading in my heart this morning." <laughs> <That was> a, <laughs> charismatic says, "I had a word from the Lord." But they use different language. But but really, that kind of sense of, of God is 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 wanting me to encourage you in some way or to share something, and in sometimes ways that I might not know the impact it's supposed to have. So we'll get into the use of those gifts in a moment. But the point is. If you live with those lanes, I could be wrong. God's word is never wrong. Man, bowl that thing. (laughs) Bowl that thing, right? (laughs) Once you have the lanes, it's not right to say, I don't like bowling. I don't want to bowl. I will (laughs) leaving." Right? No, 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 we're here to use the gifts according to God's word. God's word says bowl with these bumpers in place. I could be wrong. God's word never is. But if those bumpers are in place, you're not going to throw a gutter ball. You might not be perfect every time or amazing or 10 out of 10, but you're not going to roll a gutter ball. Amen. Right? You're not going to destroy someone or destroy yourself or misrepresent the God. If you're always saying, I could be wrong, God's word never is. Very helpful in our use of the gifts. Now, I want to stop there just for a moment and, and just pause because we're going to go into another section here. Uh, are there any questions so far about anything I've shared? And we'll have more time for questions at the end, but in this case, yeah. So, what are um, common ways that people tend to interpret scripture based on their current things? Um, common ways. Common ways, okay, yeah. So, I mean, certainly historically um, in, in the use of, of um, prophetic leadings, that would happen where people would say, I feel like the Lord has led me to, and then they would say something, you're like, you yeah, have the Bible explicitly says not to do that. You know, the, the, Lord, the Lord has led me to, I mean, in serious things, I, I think the Lord led me to leave this marriage. No, he hasn't. He hasn't. Well, you know, I really feel that he has. Yeah, but I'm telling you, he hasn't. I'm telling you, he hasn't. And that's not wrong. Uh, that's, not, that's not an impression. That's God's word. So that'd be a category, you know, to be, to be that. I just feel like the Lord has led me to focus on my, my private devotional life on Sunday mornings. That's really where God meets me. I think, uh, no, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. He, he's told you to gather with his people. He's told you to gather with his people. In, in a more serious way, if I'm being blunt, I mean, I, I think the whole category of gender is a massive category where this happens now. Um, it, certainly, that happens in um, how I identify myself. You know, I, I think the Lord's leading me to, you know, express myself in this way. That, that kind of terminology is present in the church. It's it's not just present in the world. It is present in otherwise Bible-affirming churches. Actually, what's happening today is people will say, I am an inerrantist. I believe in the inerrancy of God's word. And then they'll go on to say, and I believe God's leading me to do something that's in direct contradiction to scripture. So the, the very definition of inerrancy is being reshaped according to this idea of the leading of the Lord. So in gender issues, in re-identifying gender issues. It happens an issue of complementarianism. So this is a massive category right now that pastors you know, so we believe, according to what Paul says in various places, that the pastoral office in teaching is reserved for qualified men. Um, and yet it is very prevalent when you have a, a woman who is gifted in teaching and communication, that this gifting Trumps exegesis argument is, is being heard in churches. And everybody understands it is sympathetic to men who feel very uncomfortable because they are men uh, saying that too loudly because you're like, well, I don't think I'm, I'm not so impressive. And I think I, maybe so. Maybe God's called. So nobody wants to address the issue, but it's, it's, an, it's a leading Trump's exegesis argument. My gifting as a communicator trumps what Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. But I'm gifted. So... It's an exception. I'd say, no, no. If you do that, we've thrown out the authority of the Bible. Sometimes the Bible speaks in uncomfortable ways to different cultures. And that is one of them for us. But it speaks with authority. And if we throw out the authority there, we might as well throw it out everywhere else. So that's a current category. There's others, but that would be a current category when that's happening. Yeah. What would you see as obstacles once you have those bumpers in place what do you see as the greatest obstacle for people to keep the bowling analogy going from throwing the ball yeah i think there's a couple one we'll get to in a second one is some arguments that i think people make related to others that have misused others that don't have those in place they've seen a lot of gutter balls maybe one way to put it Mm -hmm. from other people they've been hurt by a lot of gutter balls they've seen people hurt by a lot of gutter balls they've been grieved by the dishonoring of God by a lot of gutter balls, and they're looking at that. And even though they know the bumpers are in place, they're saying, "Yeah, but I have seen a lot of gutter balls." And so they understandably are are concerned for the honor of God in bowling in general. <laughs> they're like, "I don't like this sport because uh, I've seen a lot of people wounded. People have been hitting the head with bowling balls that were <laughs> so genuinely. That's a concern. I also think there's a there's an an intellectual idolatry in the Western world that tends to assume that affirmation is the same as application, and so I think that leads people to assume as long as I think the right things, I am a Christian the way the Bible describes it, and that just frankly is not true. Bible, The Bible clearly calls people not just to write affirmation, but to write application, to love to honor, to serve, and it calls people to a supernatural life. I think the tendency is to think what Christianity is is affirming right doctrine and avoiding bad behavior. And it is those things, right? But it is not only those things. It includes affection and spiritual power, doing things that our natural abilities might cause us to fear, but through God's power we are able to do. I'm not talking about extra biblical things. I'm talking about biblical things. But that, that's, a scary, that's a scary prospect. I, I'm going to do things that naturally I would never do, could never do, totally dependent on the power of the Spirit. That, that, that feels, whether it's evangelizing someone or asking for a spiritual gift that's described in Scripture, that's a little unusual in my experience, that, that's a scary thought. So I think fear and not trusting the Lord keeps people from you know, rolling the ball in the right way. So I'll answer that. So, yeah, thank you you used the word charismatic a couple of times yep. describe yourself. How would you define charismatic? So my, my use of the word charismatic is, is a very general use. What I mean by that is I believe in the ongoing uh, work of the spirit in spiritual gifts. All right, and I believe in the power of the spirit in, in the life of the church. Um, So I'm different than some charismatics like I described last night. I I don't believe in a a subsequent distinctive baptism of the Spirit. I certainly am not a Pentecostal. I don't believe that tongues is the universal sign of the outpouring of the Spirit. What I do mean is I believe in the power of the Spirit in the church. All I mean by that is I believe in the power of the Spirit in the the church and the ongoing use of spiritual gifts. That's what I mean by that. All right, let's keep going and then I promise we'll give you a break in a little bit. But this second section, I think, uh, answers some questions, and I think it, it could be helpful. All right, the end of miraculous gifts. And yes, that is somewhat tongue-in-cheek. The end of miraculous gifts. What do we do with people who say the opposite of everything I just said? There is no miraculous gifts that have been given after the apostolic age. What, what do we do with that? Because godly and faithful, even heroes of our modern church, would say that. They hold. Actually, a large number of churches would say that. Men that I respect and and look up to in many, many ways would say that. I I don't agree with them, but I do respect them in many ways, and they would say that. How do we define cessationism? Well, the most generous definition that that I could give, genuinely trying to respect those who hold that position, would be this. Cessationism is the belief that certain spiritual gifts have ceased after the first century, after the apostles died and the canon of scripture was completed. Usually, verbal gifts like prophecy, tongues and interpretation, words of knowledge or wisdom, and gifts of healing are included. Important caveat, because we're not up here trying to bash people. Biblical cessationists do believe in the Holy Spirit. If you talk to some kind of continuationists or gifts of the Spirit people, they would say, yeah, they don't even believe in the Holy Spirit. They believe in a divinity, not a trinity. And we, we believe in the Trinity. And we say, no, 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 come on. Biblical cessationists do believe in the Holy Spirit and all of his other works referenced in Scripture. And they do not deny that God can perform miracles in the church today. God, a cessationist, absolutely, we pray God can do a miracle. But you're not to think of that as something he would do through you on a regular basis as a gift. That, that's, he might do that, but it's, it's sort of totally up to his kind of sovereign, random will. It it has nothing to do with something you should function in, and we shouldn't expect to see that in an ongoing way in the life of the church. In addition to interpreting the passages referenced below, I'll get to those, very differently, cessationists make the following arguments against continuationism, and that's the technical theological term, continuationism. That's what Redemption Hill is. It's a continuationist Church, It believes in the continuation of the use of spiritual gifts. Here are some arguments that a cessationist might make. The apostle biblical author argument. Here's their argument. Miracles identified the original apostles or biblical author. A number of passages point to that being true. That those signs revealed the original apostles. None of which, none of the apostles existed after the first century. Therefore, the purpose for miraculous gifts ceased. That's one argument they would make. Our response would be, the fact that miracles did validate an original apostle or biblical author does not mean that was their only purpose. They continue to validate the presence of the Holy Spirit in His church as He wills. There were no apostles without miraculous verification, but there can be miracles without apostles. Second argument they might make, a foundation argument. Miraculous gifts were necessary to establish the church But God groups his miraculous works into periods periods of history. Response. The fact that God used miracles to establish the church does not mean he doesn't use miraculous gifts to continue to build up the church. Actually, I think that's precisely why Paul says what he does to the Corinthians and why it's been canonized for us in God's word. The experience argument. Many Christians haven't seen anything miraculous. Miraculous. And God would not leave many Christians out of miraculous blessings, therefore God has not given miraculous gifts ordinarily to the church. Response, even if that were true, that many Christians haven't seen miraculous gifts, these gifts are given at the sovereign discretion of the Holy Spirit, and our experience should not dictate our theology. Furthermore, many trustworthy Christians have testified to seeing these miraculous gifts in operation. It tends to be a somewhat circular argument where you say, many Christians haven't seen miraculous gifts. And then you meet a Christian that says, I have absolutely seen miraculous gifts. And then the person says, I don't believe you. <laughs> well, well, then how, how, what would convince the opposite of this argument, right? But the, the more important point is, theologically, that ought to shape what we believe about the ongoing use of miraculous gifts. And we'll get to theology in a second. The experience, I'm sorry, the danger to scripture argument. (laughs) Revelation. For God to reveal anything to Christians other than scripture is to undermine the sufficiency of scripture. God would not undermine his own word. Therefore, God does not reveal anything supernaturally to Christians. Obviously, this is speaking to kind of word gifts. Response. We cannot uphold God's word by ignoring the teaching in God's word about non-biblical revelation or New Testament prophecy. The exegesis and careful application of scripture and not our attempt to protect scripture from itself is the best way to honor God's word. What about the charismatic malpractice argument? Many people today who believe in miraculous gifts do not prioritize the preaching and application of God's word or they clearly disregard God's word in their practice. Therefore, God cannot be behind miraculous gifts in the church today. Response. The disobedience or foolishness of some Christians in applying God's word is never a reason for us to disregard or distort the teaching of God's word. It is important for us to state that we absolutely agree that many critiques of modern charismatic leaders including those who promote the false health, wealth, and prosperity teaching or name it and claim it theology or those who misuse spiritual gifts to promote themselves or to diminish the authority of scripture or to de-emphasize the centrality of the gospel. We, We would agree with those critiques. None of those critiques should keep us from being passionate in obedience of what God's word does teach about the practice of spiritual gifts. If you apply this in any other category, I think it's seen more clearly. Many... Spouses treat their spouse abominably in monogamous marriages. Therefore, monogamous marriages must not be God's word. No. The disobedience of some Christians is no excuse for not obeying what God's word says. Many parents harm their children. Therefore, any discipline must not be what God calls parents to do. No the disobedience of some Christians must not be used as an excuse for not obeying what God's Word says in the right way. Those are sort of general arguments that cessationists would make, but I think it's helpful to get into key scriptures for continuationism, and I just want to say this very clearly. Given these scriptures, I think overwhelmingly the burden of proof that these miraculous gifts ceased at a certain point, lies with a cessationist because of these scriptures. And in my opinion, the exegesis of these passages are woefully inadequate to prove that miraculous gifts that are clearly called for, even commanded to be eagerly desired in scripture, have ceased. I think there is an overwhelming burden of proof on a cessationist to show why the direct commands of scripture are not to be obeyed. And I do not think any of those arguments are sufficient to make that case. And I definitely don't think the study of these scriptures uh, helps that case either. So what are key scriptures for continuationism? Well, one would be Acts 2. It says in Acts 2 that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter is describing the outpouring of the spirit. And he says that this will happen on all your sons and your daughters. They shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So his first phrase, the last days, seems to be a description of what will happen until the last day when these cataclysmic events signal the end of the world. So I don't think you can make the case that the last days referred to just a temporary moment because then he describes the end of those days in undeniable cataclysm. So he's describing a work of the Spirit that is new, is unique, was prophesied and includes miraculous uh, works on the part of God's people. And then when he says to them, later when he's preaching to the crowd, he says, the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you. So he preaches Joel... And he says, this is what is happening, yes. and this gift is for you, yes. so not just for the disciples. Amen. It's for you. You're to experience mm-hmm. these last days provision of the Holy Spirit. D.A. Carson says, the coming of the Spirit is not associated merely with the dawning of the new age, but with its presence, not merely with Pentecost, but with the entire period from Pentecost to the return of Jesus the Messiah. I think Acts 2 is very important for understanding the, the, this Activity of the Spirit is meant to characterize these last days in which we live. Second important passage would be 1 Corinthians 13. This is where Paul is exhorting the Corinthians the importance of love. And then he says this, love never ends. So, So love is superior to spiritual gifts and should be their motive. As for prophecies, they will pass away. So here we have it. Some reference to the end of prophecies, the end of miraculous gifts. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will, there's the word, cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. There's that guardrail. I am not authoritative. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, here's a very important sentence. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, I know, I'm I'm certain that this is the case, that even some cessationists have gone away from wanting this passage as a defense of cessationism, because you just cannot make a strong case that those phrases, that then I shall know face to face, is a very vague reference to the death of the apostles or the establishment of the canon. The, the clearest reading of that passage is it's referring to when we are known by Christ face to face, when the end shall come. And in that time, miraculous gifts will cease because we will be living the miracle, we will be with Christ, and there will be no need for the partial any longer. But I think it is a reading into that passage to say that we're defining that end sooner than that end. So that's a, actually a verse, I think, for continuationism. But until that end comes, prophecies and tongues and those things are meant to continue. Yes. What about 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where there's a number of commands here, where Paul directly commands the desiring of spiritual gifts. One would have to wonder, how was the church meant to interpret these commands? If 1 Corinthians is canonical scripture, And it absolutely is affirmed as canonical scripture by the church through the ages. What is the church meant to do with these commands? And why would they be given so repeatedly if we were meant to do the opposite of them? And what other commands in scripture would we dare do the opposite of what they say? Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may Prophesy. Or as 12 says, "...earnestly desire the higher gifts." Now I want you, he says, "...all to speak in tongues." Extraordinary saying that to a church that is abusing the gift of tongues. I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. <laughs> then he says, "...was it from you the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord." Those things include earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire prophecy, he says. And do not forbid speaking in the tongues. Or we might look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Mm. Or we have Romans 12. Prophecy included with gifts that are clearly intended for the whole church age. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And in my opinion, the clearest way to read that passage and the other passages and say these are things meant to perpetually describe the church age. Hmm. How, how, how much violence would it do to Romans 12 if we were to say one of those phrases is meant to be plucked out and not obeyed and all the rest are to be obeyed? No, no, you can't, you can't do that exegetically. You, that would right. be violence in any other exegetical moment. That would be violence. We're going to take Amen. just Romans 8, 1 out of Romans. Just the verse that says there is no condemnation. There <laughs> is condemnation, but through the law, the spirit of Wise has set you free from the law of sin and death. No, you, you can't. You can't just pluck one verse randomly. That's uncomfortable. What if we did that with other passages? I like all the verses except the one about self-control. I'd like to not obey that one. No, we, we can't do that. that. That's not good exegesis. We, we have to do what the scripture says, however uncomfortable it is. Whatever discomfort various verses might have for us, we, we have to do them. We have to at least press forward in them. Otherwise, the point is, we're undermining God's word. This is where I go back to that original argument. We, we don't honor God's word by protecting God's word from itself. Mm. Amen. I am a continuationist because of these verses. If these verses says, don't you dare prophesy, then don't you dare. But if they say, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, don't you dare not do that. Because this is God's word. Right? That would be the the exegetical basis for continuationism. Because it's described as the nature of the outpouring of the Spirit. It's repeatedly commanded and described in various epistles in in the clearest, most direct way it could be. Paul could not be more direct and clear. Can it be abused? Yes. Do we guard against that abuse? Absolutely. But is it directly and clearly and repeatedly commanded? Yes, it is. Well, as Christians, do we have any choice but to obey eagerly and joyfully and willingly what God has commanded? No! We don't have any choice but to do that. And the arguments that in some general way, they should be put down for those other reasons, I I just find far from sufficient to counteract especially these direct commands of the Scriptures. These are just, this is just Bible authority. In my view, this is as simple as a Bible authority question. Either our theological system has authority or the Bible has authority. And in these cases, the Bible is very, very clear. Therefore, I think there ought to be an obedience of those scriptures, a joyful, trusting, wise, biblical obedience of what the Bible calls us to in the ongoing desiring of and practice of spiritual gifts.